Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. But again, let me say Happy Easter. Are you sure? Are you sure? I mean, I was going to say Happy Easter finally, because Easter Sunday, I don't know if anybody else noticed, Easter Sunday this year is uncommonly late. Falling on this date, April 17th, are you ready for this? For the first time in 62 years. The last time we celebrated Easter on April 17th was 1960. And I don't get to say this very often, that was before I was born. (laughs) Now, I heard that. Now, if perhaps we don't know or remember why the date of Easter keeps moving from year to year, centuries ago at what was known as the Council of Nicaea, the church established the tradition of setting the holiday on the first Sunday after the first full moon occurring on or after what's known as the vernal equinox, otherwise known as the start of spring. Given this tradition, the celebration of Easter can fall from year to year anywhere from March 22nd all the way to April 25th. And I know that there's at least one person out there, and it's me, you're wondering, when does Easter fall on the latest possible date of April 25th? Well, it's very rare, actually. It only occurs 1% of the time in the last 400 years. The previous time we celebrated Easter on April 25th was in 1943. And the next one won't arrive until 2038. And I'll be really old in 2038, and I'm not really happy about that. Now, we say Happy Easter because Easter has kind of become the church's go-to term for today, especially when we invite people to join us to celebrate. But I want to be honest, I prefer calling today Resurrection Sunday. Now, don't get me wrong, don't get me wrong, it's not that I have anything at all against chocolate bunnies, jelly beans, or egg hunts. Not at all. And for the record, in case anyone's taking notes, I prefer the red, white, and green jelly beans, not the black ones. Ugh. I like the Reese's chocolate peanut butter eggs. And I prefer the dark chocolate hollow bunnies. Now that you know. I prefer Resurrection Sunday. Seriously, I prefer Resurrection Sunday to Easter Sunday because... It makes more explicit why we're gathered here today. It leaves no misunderstanding as to the cornerstone of the Christian faith, the foundation upon which the whole church is built and continues to stand. And and that is this, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And while this conviction should be the reason we come together today, in my experience, more people believe in Easter than they do Resurrection Sunday. I mean, almost everybody. I don't know a person who doesn't enjoy all the pomp and pageantry of Easter, right? The new dresses, the suits, the stylish hats, the fresh flowers, the honey-baked ham, huh, right? (laughs) And who doesn't want to celebrate the turning of the cold dog days of winter into the warm, colorful days of spring? But most people are uncomfortable, very uncomfortable with any talk of resurrection, let alone celebrating it. Many find the very notion of a formerly dead Jesus walking out of a sealed tomb to be outlandish, illogical, irrational, nonsensical, 
But as we turn to the written testimony of what brings us together today, the Gospel of Luke, we might be surprised to learn that today's modern skeptics were not the first to have trouble believing a body could literally rise from the dead. If you have your Bibles open, we're looking at Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 36. Will that be on the screen? Yes, it is. All right. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A little context to this scene. Two followers of Jesus, a man named Cleophas and his unnamed companion, have returned to Jerusalem, having only just left, being headed out on the road to Emmaus. Initially, they were seeking to distance themselves from the perceived tragedy of the last few days, but then these two men have an unexpected encounter with the once crucified but now very much alive Jesus talking with them along the road and then briefly sharing a meal. This event immediately causes them both to reverse course, retrace their seven-mile journey back to Jerusalem, and seek out the company of disciples they had left behind. And as we come on our scripture today, they're in the middle of recounting their experience when Jesus does it again. He appears out of nowhere and interrupts them saying, peace be with you. All of the disciples, including the two followers who previously, just previously encountered Jesus on the road to Emmaus, all of the disciples can't believe what they're seeing. Initially, we're told their disbelief is the result of fear as they perceive Jesus to be a ghost. But even after seeing and touching Jesus' scarred hands and feet, their collective disbelief continues, this time born out of their joy and amazement. Seeing Jesus alive is just too good to be true. And their initial lingering disbelief, I think, is understandable. I mean, Jesus had died. Like others who had been crucified, Jesus died of asphyxiation. His lifeless body had been taken down off of the cross, properly cleaned up, prepared for burial, and then sealed behind a stone-covered tomb. Jesus was dead and buried. But now... Jesus stood before them very much alive and kicking. And yet, to those who were there in person, resurrection was still hard to swallow. How much harder 
must it be then for us to accept the resurrection of Jesus since we can only take their word on it? I mean, honestly, resurrection stretches the bounds of believability. I mean, after all, everyone knows, we all know, despite significant advances in medical science, there comes a point for every living being when breathing stops, when the heart, robbed of the life-giving oxygen it needs to deliver that same wondrous element to the rest of the body, when the heart stops beating. And once this happens... Once the heart stops beating, once the heart refuses to beat, death is the result, and there can be no going back. For dead, as they say, is dead. Relying strictly on what we know, what we experience, we're much more familiar and therefore much more comfortable leaving Jesus in the tomb. We would would rather imagine Jesus at rest at peace, a good man unfairly killed, like Martin Luther King, or Abraham Lincoln, or Gandhi. And if we are to talk of his resurrection, if we're going to get into that resurrection talk, we can be tempted to try and fit the accounts of the risen Christ into the world we know and inhabit. We try to make the resurrection work in a way that makes it sensible, plausible to us. And we usually do this by searching for metaphor or analogy. And so we speak of Jesus as being a transcendent example or model who continues to live through our memory of his words and our memory of his deeds that inspire us. Jesus is risen in the joy of our hearts. Jesus is risen in the love we share with each other. Jesus is risen indeed. It just doesn't have the same ring, does it? But Luke is unambiguous in what he writes here. Luke asserts something far different. If we notice all the physical details he includes, describing Jesus as being visible, audible, touchable, and even having Jesus presenting himself as being a little hangry. Luke's message is clear. This was no spiritual or metaphorical resurrection. Jesus' resurrection was real, and it was physical. And yet, perhaps like the first disciples, we still find ourselves incredulous. Literal, physical resurrection doesn't make sense to us. But let me ask you something. Does death make any more sense to us? Does anyone really think death is logical when the potential and promise of any human life is abruptly cut short and without warning that death is logical? If if death is so rational, why do we lament at the termination of any life? Well, some might argue, well, one should at least have had a good run or lived a full life so that, that they're prepared for death when it comes. Okay, But how much life lived is enough to make death acceptable? How much life lived is enough to make death acceptable? And why don't we want someone else deciding that for us? When enough is enough, if death is so logical. Still, we push back. Look, resurrection isn't natural to the human experience. Whereas death is a part of life. It's a part of life that we know. 
But again, I ask you, do we truly believe we were created to die? We've all heard the expression, youth is wasted on the young. And that saying, youth is wasted on the young, obviously was crafted by someone we would consider as having lived a long life who's trying to communicate to all of us that death makes no sense. Because if the wisdom that comes from maturity teaches us that the older we get, the more we realize how much we still have to learn, does it make any sense? Our life starts to wither and ultimately ceases to be just when we're really getting started in terms of living. What's natural about that? Deep down, aren't we all longing for resurrection? How many of our loved ones have we had to let go of? Are we truly content with the idea we will never see them again? We say we don't believe in resurrection, even as we refuse to settle for death, as we attempt to keep our deceased loved ones alive by insisting they live in our memories. But what happens when our memories fail? When there is no one left who remembers those who have died, how then do the deceased keep on living? How many of those we cherish are struggling, laboring even now with disease, with abuse, with rejection, with abandonment. And if there's no resurrection, why do we refuse to give up on them? Why do we refuse to surrender our passionate conviction that they deserve, that they will find victory before whatever trouble or loss they are facing? Is it a coincidence? Is it a coincidence that we tend to prefer stories about incredible comebacks? Or is there something to the fact that the songs we most love to sing, and I'm talking outside the church, the songs we most love to sing, the movies we are willing to line up to watch are always about second chances. They're always about shots at redemption. No vision, no inspiration, Ever was born from the certainty that life is dead on arrival, that death is our final destination. When we dream, we don't dream about failure. When we hope, we don't hope for nothing. Our hopes and dreams are built on possibilities, the conviction that anything can happen. But even as I try, even as I try this morning to point beyond our learned acceptance of death, even as I try to suggest we are divinely hardwired to yearn for resurrection, my intention is not to prove to you that Jesus is risen. I feel absolutely no need to try and convince anyone the resurrection actually happened. Because no amount of apologetic calisthenics no dismantling of scientific arguments can bridge the gap of what today is all about. And today is all about a mystery, a miracle, an act of God that is beyond human possibility, something that exceeds both our intellectual and emotional grasp. We walk through the door that is Easter out of the tomb that was once sealed. We walk through the door of Easter by faith, not by proofs or logic. We walk 
through the door from this life into the next by faith or we do not walk through it at all. And this faith of which I speak is not something we muster. It's not about us generating, trying real hard, the power to believe. It's not about us opening up our door to the risen Christ. What I offer, what I proclaim today is the gift of faith. The presence and power of the risen Christ who comes much like he does to the first disciples through our door, open or closed, through the doorway of our skepticism, through the doorway of our doubt, through the doorway of our fear, through the doorway of our longing, who enters into the space of our lives and enables us to receive him, who calls us to follow where he leads Because what we celebrate today isn't Jesus merely giving us resurrection. Today is about realizing Jesus is the resurrection. That Jesus is what he said he was, the resurrection and the life. What we celebrate today is Jesus giving us himself, not giving us life after death, hear that, not giving us life after death, but giving us life beyond death. Another way of expressing this, if I have your attention, is to clarify that the announcement of the first Easter Sunday is not the claim of Jesus' resuscitation, a reviving of life back to what it once was before. I mean, stories of near-death experiences are increasingly familiar to us. We have stories of resuscitation, heroic efforts that bring a life back from the brink of death or even the beginning experiences of death and return that revived person back to their previously living state. But Jesus wasn't mostly dead and slightly alive. Princess Bride, anyone? (laughs) Jesus was completely dead and then he was alive In a whole new way. In other words, Jesus didn't come back to life only to be subject to death later. I mean, think about that. Coming back from the dead, simply coming back to life as we know it, that may buy us more time on this earth, but it doesn't fundamentally address the problem of things in this life, things in this world, not being the way they're supposed to be. And it's interesting, right? It's interesting. Ask anyone, and you'll find universal agreement. And there's few things you'll get this on. Universal agreement that this world, that this life, is not all that it can be. That this world, that this life, is not all that it was meant to be. That, that things, that, that we, us, all of it, are broken, fractured. Everyone agrees there is a problem. The disagreement comes when we talk about what's the solution. The Christian answer, why we assert God came down to us in Jesus Christ in the first place, why Jesus walked and taught among us and ultimately offered his life for all the world by way of the cross, the Christian answer as to why things aren't the way they're supposed to be is sin. Whoop, there it is. That dirty little word. That dirty little word that's fallen out of fashion. Sin, no, we don't like that word. Most people nowadays take great offense at anyone 
of calling anything they choose to do that doesn't affect anyone else as being wrong. But as properly understood, sin isn't something we get to define for ourselves. Sin isn't even something we get to label for others. Sin is not about our opinion. It's about the perspective of our creator, the one who created us, the one who designed everything, the one who knows how things are supposed to work. And the concept of sin, if it's accepted, if it's invoked at all, the concept of sin then tends to be discussed in purely individual terms. We talk about my sins, your sins, my sins, your sins. And whereas we like to ignore or dismiss how interconnected our lives are, our creator repeatedly makes it clear our choices and actions, my choices and actions, your choices and actions have consequences. And those consequences go further than our individual intentions. Some try to pluralize sin. Counting and categorizing sins, creating hierarchies and degrees of wrongdoing. But God keeps it simple. God keeps it simple. Anytime we live for ourselves at the expense of others, anytime we seek to be self sufficient and self justifying rather than solely dependent upon our Creator, our Father, the author of life, anytime we fall into those two places, we are sinners. And based on that definition, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. Understood this way, our growing tendency towards polarization, pointing the finger at someone else for our problems, falls flat. Coming from that perspective, there's enough blame to go around for everybody. And contrary to how we live, it's not us versus them however we define us and them. No, it's all are guilty and have fallen short of the glory of God. Biblically, death exists because of sin, because the ultimate inevitable outcome of living our lives divorced from each other, divorced from our true selves, and most importantly, divorced from our creator, it can only lead to death. For if we, as our parents sometimes reminded us, didn't bring ourselves into this world, then we have no way of avoiding our departure one day from this life. Now, Christians talk about this problem of sin as being dealt with on the cross. We declare Jesus disarms the power of sin in our lives through the, his greater power of sacrificial love and divine forgiveness. And this is most certainly true. But what's also important to understand is that what reveals the truth of that statement, what validates that statement, that act, that the power of God's love and the promise of divine forgiveness are in fact greater than death is the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can celebrate the cross all you want, the Apostle Paul will write. You can wear one on your neck. You can claim, oh, it's all about the cross. If there's no resurrection, you're just dumb. You got it all wrong. It's all about the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. And again, that means... That victory is not about Jesus coming back from the dead. It's about Jesus conquering death. 
Jesus transforms life as we know it, a life marked by sin, evil, and death, into offering us life, as he describes it, that is full, abundant, and everlasting. The resurrection of Jesus is not about Christ coming back to life. It's about our entire life being changed. All creation being transformed. The heart of the resurrection, my friends, is about change. Our need to be changed for life as we know it, for the world to be changed for the better. But let's be clear about something. The offer, the invitation, the movement towards change from the resurrection are about here and now. I'm not speaking of anyone specifically, but too many Easter messages, too many, have strangely and falsely reduced the implication of today's good news as being for later, someday in the future. The change to be brought about by the Jesus' resurrection, it said, is relegated to the afterlife. And the gift of faith that I spoke of previously becomes nothing more than a golden ticket to ride to heaven when we physically die. And ironically, this individualistic corruption of the Easter message of escaping to heaven contains no vision for the transformation of all creation, but instead can only perceive creation's condemnation and destruction. But this is not the gospel. This is not the actual message of Christianity. And don't take my word for it. Don't ever take anybody's word for it. You don't have to. Open up the Bible and read it carefully for yourself. Read it carefully. And you will struggle to find Jesus declaring that he defeated death so that you can go to heaven when you die. Don't get me wrong. While salvation from the finality of physical death is offered by Jesus, read it, his resurrection is extended both as a pointer and an invitation to a new form of life. A life lived beyond the limits of our fears. A life lived beyond death, beyond living in its shadow now. Read the scriptures carefully, and you will be unable to avoid noticing how Jesus frames both his death and his resurrection, not in light of any indifference or condemnation towards creation, but instead with an aim towards the reclamation and restoration, not just of individuals, but of nations. And not just of nations, but of the entire cosmos. Don't you see? The horizon of Christ's resurrection is broader. It's more expansive. It's more encompassing than the focus of my personal eternal destiny. Its dawning light does not direct us away from this world towards some unknown, unforeseen, heavenly or spiritual realm. No, Christ's resurrection is an affirmation of our bodily existence in this world. It's an invitation for us to explore fresh ways of renewal, restoration, recreation in our own time and place. In the communities we build and share together. That's why 
Did you catch it? Even here in this passage, Jesus calls for those who follow him not to sit on their hands, not to shake their heads, not to point their fingers at the world as it continues to suffer, but instead calls us to be witnesses to a new order of things, to an alternative way of living, to a hopeful rather than a hopeless outlook. Hope not only for tomorrow, but hope that starts today. Jesus' invitation is our commission, beloved. Celebrating Easter must be more than saying, Christ is risen. That's great. It's true. But if that's all you got, you don't got much. Celebrating Easter has got to be more than saying Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Actually, instead of saying he is risen indeed, live he is risen indeed. Because resurrection is meant to be seen. If there is proof of resurrection to be found, that evidence, as Jesus indicates here to his first disciples, that evidence comes through us. We who profess to follow Christ. For by the grace of God and the gift of the word and the spirit, we are to reflect the risen Christ through the character and content of our lives. One of the most compelling pieces of evidence of the resurrection is a changed life. Not a perfect life, but a life being transformed. A life of learning, growing, and maturing in its health, its wholeness and generosity. What might that look like? What might living the resurrection life look like? It looks like this. Instead of living life on the run, trying to beat the clock as if we're running out of time, and that is where most of the people in this room are living, running as if you're trying to beat the clock as if you're running out of time, living the resurrection is living out of our confidence in Christ that we have all the time in the world. And therefore, we prioritize living not for what is passing or fleeting or momentary, but rather investing and cultivating in what is timeless and eternal. The power of the resurrection, the presence of the risen Christ, it doesn't end with us. Both the presence and power of the risen Christ are intended to travel, to be extended through us. Because the other most compelling and perhaps the most provocative evidence of the resurrection is the witness of transformed communities. Gatherings of believers that reflect this new creation, that reflect the transformative possibilities of forgiveness, grace, and love. And those kind of communities, such transformed communities, are formed as we, instead of living life in fear or denial of death. And again, many of us in this room still, despite being here today, are living in fear or denial of death. But transformed communities are formed when we stop living in fear or denial of death, spending the bulk of our time, our energy, and our resources trying to protect and secure our well-being. No, the resurrection life is living together by being death-defying. Live death-defying lives. Living boldly and courageously, taking risks and putting our lives on the line for the sake of the well-being, the health, the security, the protection of others, particularly those in need. Especially those who right now are dying more than they are living. <laughs> I can't prove the resurrection to you. I've said that. And I may not have been able to convince you to receive the gift of faith that Jesus offers to us all. But I can and I will still proclaim the reality of resurrection in Christ that is all around us. 
I can testify to its impact upon our humanity, upon our lives. I can be what all followers of Christ are called to be, a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in everyday life. My friends, I have seen, seen alcoholics and other addicts raised from the dead in Christ when they were able to get clean and the chains of their false dependency were broken. Set free, I've witnessed those who would have called themselves the walking dead become new transformed persons bursting forth with hopes and dreams and possibilities they never had before. I have seen the resurrection of Christ happen in relationships, in marriages, among families, through friendships, even between enemies, when it would have been easy to give up on those relationships. According to the advice of the rational and the pragmatic, those marriages were already divorced. Those friendships, those families were broken beyond repair. And those friendships were long dead and buried. And those enemies weren't even worth trying to make peace. But then, much to everyone's surprise, resurrection happened. Resurrection in the form of life change that looks a lot like Jesus. A willingness to listen. An offering of forgiveness and a commitment to lovingly serve each other. And I can testify, those relationships, those marriages, those families, those friendships, hear me, didn't just come back to life. They were radically transformed with a shared strength, a common vision, and a mutual dedication that didn't exist before. Beloved, I'm here to tell you, Whenever and wherever lives are changed and communities are transformed for the better, Jesus lives and there is resurrection. And there are literally millions of mini resurrections happening all around us. Vibrant, touching examples of life coming out of death, of victory rising out of defeat, of what is old being transformed into something new. And we don't always see these things. And even when we do see them, we don't always connect them to God's greater plan for us and all humanity. We might not make the connection, but that's why such moments exist in the fabric of creation as signposts, as markers of the greatest transformation, the most important victory of all, the fulfillment of a promise, the expression of divine unconditional love, the declaration of a new kingdom that are all found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ is present. Jesus is the one who makes it happen, whether he gets the credit for it or not. Because resurrection is no isolated incident. It's not an aberration. By God's power at work within us, let us dwell richly in the dawn of a new day, offering the hope of Christ the hope of Christ in the midst of the tragedy and troubles of this world rather than adding to the opposition and anxiety that we see in this weary and broken creation. As followers of Christ, let's not be resistant to change. Instead, as we believe, as we look for Jesus to make all things new, including us, let us expect, let us anticipate change, looking for how we can participate in God's redemptive agenda to restore human flourishing, to remake all creation. As followers of Jesus, let's not remain silent in either word or deed in sharing this good news, for how can we keep quiet 
How can we keep quiet once we realize God's yes to life is louder than death's no? Instead of continuing to circulate the stale, tired, polluted air of pessimism and fatalism, aren't you tired of it? Of pessimism and fatalism that insists this life is all there is. That we ought to plan for the worst rather than anything getting better. Instead, let us deeply inhale and exhale the breath of the Spirit. The sure promise of God's word that there is more to this life than we can imagine or hope for. And that the best is yet to come. Because over 2,000 years ago, God in Christ walked into human history and bore the full weight of human suffering even unto death. Oh, death had its day. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, don't you mistake it. Death had its day when Jesus was crucified on the cross, but death forever lost having the last word when Jesus rose from the grave. For the God in Christ who walked into life as we know it, later walked out of the tomb to begin to lead us into the kind of life that previously we only dreamed of. The kind of life we long for, a life without fear of the future, a life with freedom to fully live in the presence and a life of endless opportunity, everlasting second chances and eternal purpose for tomorrow. My friends, today is Resurrection Sunday. And thanks to Jesus, today can be the first day of the rest of our lives. Amen. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.